This week, we are starting a new sermon series that will uh, take us through the next couple of months, months of September and October. And normally, most of the time, we are working our way through whole uh, books of the Bible in uh, these preaching series on Sunday morning. Earlier this year, we wrapped up Hebrews, and then we went all the way through Nehemiah. We spent several weeks in the Psalms. But from time to time, as you know, I like to take kind of a little break from uh, going all the way through books to maybe uh, uh, take some time to look at a particular doctrine of Scripture or an attribute of God or an aspect of Christian life and faith. And I uh, felt several weeks ago the Lord kind of leading me to spend some time uh, on a doctrine, a doctrine doctrine of Scripture, something that the Bible teaches. Doctrine should not be a scary word uh, or a curse word that we use in back hallways or anything like that. Doctrine is a good thing. Doctrine is the stuff the Bible teaches us. And one of the, the key doctrines that shapes so much of who we are as Christians is what the Bible teaches about salvation, what it means to be saved. And when we think about salvation, sometimes the, the furthest we go in our description of, uh, of salvation or the deepest our theology of salvation goes is maybe something as simple as the Bible is true and Jesus saves. And friends, that is true and we should affirm that. But the Bible teaches so much more about salvation. When we talk about being saved by grace through faith in Christ, we're talking actually about a lot of different things. And so over the next several weeks, we're going to look at all that we mean when we talk about salvation, which is in and of itself God's wonderful work in us. This morning, we're starting with the easiest of all the parts of salvation. Election and predestination. Do I need to give my two weeks notice? I hope not. I invite you to open your Bibles to two places this morning. First of all, Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30. Romans 8, 28 to 30. And Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 6. Romans 8, Ephesians 1. Just open one, stick your thumb in the other. Now I know that this aspect of salvation pertaining to election, predestination, two words that I'll sort of use synonymously this morning, that this is a hard topic. Uh, this aspect of the doctrine of salvation evokes an emotional response in a lot of people. I'm glad that most of you laughed uh, at first this morning, albeit awkwardly. That's okay. It's a good start. This topic, this aspect of our salvation, often divides people into theological camps. Uh, you say the word in a crowded room, and it's like almost immediately you have, you have people flocking to one another based upon what sort of conclusions they come to about election and predestination. But these words and this concept is biblical. The Bible uses the concept and the word election, the elect, those who are chosen in God. The Bible uses the word predestination or predestined. It's there. It's not an English uh, confusion of the original Greek word. That's, that's the best translation of the original Greek words. And so because these concepts are displayed for us in Scripture, and particularly pertaining to salvation, we need to think about them. We need to understand what God's Word says about them, and we need to, to, to learn how to apply what God's Word says about election and predestination, apply it to our lives in meaningful ways. Our church has a statement of faith. That statement of faith is the Baptist faith and message uh, approved by the messengers to the Southern Baptist Convention in the year 2000. And here is how the Baptist faith and message defines election. Listen. Election is the gracious purpose of God, according to which he regenerates, justifies, sanctifies, and glorifies sinners. 
It is consistent with the free agency of man and comprehends all the means in connection with the end. That means election, God's election of people to be saved includes everything that will lead them to a point of placing faith in Jesus and everything that comes after it all the way up to their resurrection. Election is the glorious display of God's sovereign goodness and it is infinitely wise, holy, and unchangeable. It excludes boasting and promotes humility. We're going to look at two passages of Scripture this morning, Romans 8, Ephesians 1. And in those two places, we will see that according to His infinite grace, God has chosen to call, justify, sanctify, and glorify undeserving sinners so that they might resemble Jesus, His Son, their Savior. That's what the Bible, in in one sentence, teaches about election and predestination. That God in His infinite grace has chosen to call, justify, sanctify, glorify undeserving sinners so that they can look like Christ, His Son. So this morning as we explore this topic, and and just fair warning, we're not going to get into the weeds of election and predestination, okay? This morning as we see what Scripture has to say from these two passages about this, In light of the truth of of divine election, we should be, this morning, this is what I want for us, to be, first of all, humbled by God's grace, humbled by God's kindness to undeserving sinners. Second, I want for us to be comforted in the security of our faith, in the security of our salvation, because it is in, from, through, and by, and for God. And finally, I want for us to be invigorated, to proclaim the gospel to all without prejudice. So join me in standing, if you would, as you're comfortably able, to honor God as we read his word. First, Romans, 20, uh, Romans 8, 28 through 30, and then Ephesians 1, 3 to 6. The Apostle Paul is the author of both of these letters, one to the church at Rome, one to the church at Ephesus. And in Romans 8, 28, Paul writes, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now turn with me to Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 6. Paul begins the body, the substance of his letter to the church at Ephesus this way. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us, there's that idea of election, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. This is God's word. You may be seated. Some of you are feeling like I have really stepped in it this week. We'll see if that's true. Let's see what the Bible says about election and what it means uh, for us as believers, as Christians, as people hearing the gospel today. What can we learn from Romans 8 and Ephesians 1 about this aspect of our salvation? Well, first of all, divine election is God's grace in action. 
That's what we should understand about, uh, about election, first of all, that it is God's grace in action. Remember the Baptist faith and message. Our, profession, our, our confession of faith says election is the gracious purpose of God. It starts with him and with his kindness. Divine election is, first of all, as we see in Romans 8 and also in Ephesians 1 and all throughout the Bible for that matter, divine election is God's grace in action, first of all, toward the undeserving, toward people who don't deserve it. What we must first affirm before we go any further this morning in this topic of uh, election and predestination is that grace by its nature is undeserved. No one earns it. No one is more or less worthy of receiving God's grace. There is nothing in human nature, there is nothing in human action that compels God to be gracious. If so, it wouldn't be grace. It would be just desserts. God gives grace. He is kind toward undeserving sinners Because it is who he is. It is in his nature, in his character to be kind and merciful, gracious and loving to those who don't deserve it. Romans 8 says, uh, calls those who are called according to God's purpose and those who have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Ephesians 1 in Christ. These are also among all who have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, like Romans 3.23 says. Those who have been called according to God's purpose are also the same who were dead in their trespasses and sins, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, who were children of wrath like the rest of mankind because of their sin. The doctrine of election is rooted, first of all, in the kindness of God to people who had nothing to offer God in return. To those who had rejected him. To those who despised the fact that they were made in the image of God to know, love, and worship Him and instead sought their own glory, their own spiritual autonomy, sought their own praise among other people. And friends, that's all of us outside of Christ. The fact that God would save any sinner is an act of infinite grace. And we need to regularly remind ourselves that this is true. A loving God gives sacrificially, abundantly, infinitely more than is ever deserved to people who certainly don't deserve any of it. Romans 5, 8, Paul says, God demonstrates his love for us in this. And even while we were sinners, enemies of God, traitors against the divine king, Christ died for us. In this sense, election is and must be unconditional. That is, it's not given in response to human deservingness, but apart from anything that any person could do to try to prove that they are worth receiving it. God gives grace to undeserving people because he desires and loves to give grace to undeserving people. Not because those undeserving people somehow manage to clean themselves up, do enough good works to prove themselves worthy of receiving what God would give. It is all of God's saving love to people who did not love him. Friends, this is grace. Divine election is, first of all, God's grace, his loving kindness in action toward undeserving sinners. But divine election is also God's grace in action from eternity, from eternity past. God's purpose in election, in in choosing some to save, as Romans 8.28 says, is an eternal purpose. Ephesians 1, verse 4, we read, says that election happens before the foundation of the world. This means, on the one hand, God has known every sinner that he was going to save by his grace through faith in Jesus from before the time he even created the world. He knew all of them before there was ever even time to be considered. 
In fact, the phrase from Romans 8.29, those whom he foreknew, is probably most properly understood, those whom he foreloved or loved beforehand. That idea of God knowing people is intimately linked to the idea of God knowing people in relationship with them. God does not merely know facts uh, from eternity. He doesn't just know what people will do. God knows people. He knows souls from eternity past. And he knows more than just what they will do. He knows them in relationship to himself. Christian, if you know Christ today, you can rejoice and you ought to rejoice in the fact that God in Christ has known you infinitely longer. Now, because God is sovereign, which means that he is totally independent and in authority over all things, because God is sovereign, nothing can thwart his purposes. Nothing can stop God from doing what he intends to do. So if God has elected from eternity past, as scripture says he has, then he has also ensured that those that he knows in a saving way will certainly be saved. This is what Paul means by predestined. Now, here's where things get tricky, and we get ourselves, we twist ourselves in all sorts of philosophical and and logical pretzels trying to understand how how election works. And friends, we're not going to untie that pretzel today. But what's helpful, I think, for us is when we think about how, how God predestines, how God knows from before the foundations of the world those whom he will save by grace in Christ, we need to not think about God like this mystical, magical, time traveling alien. God is not Doctor Who, right? You guys know Doctor Who, the, the, the British sort of comedy, sci-fi, thriller series. Doctor Who, the doctor, is an alien. He is a time lord, and he travels all space of, in time in this uh, ship called a TARDIS. Uh, TARDIS stands for time and relative dimension in space. I think that's right, Jim. Yep, nailed it. And, and in the TARDIS, which looks like a blue uh, British police box, the doctor, along with his sometimes human companions, is able to travel all up and down the timeline and in every part of space to observe all that goes on. And we learn from the doctor that there are certain things in time that are fixed points in time. There are things that can't be undone. And then there's all the other stuff in the middle, beyond the fixed points, that he likes to, let's just be honest, mess with a little bit and see what happens. And so Doctor Who can, from one perspective, speak to people in maybe a pastime about something that's going to happen because he's already traveled there and back again. And they look at him like, oh my goodness, you're magical. You know all these things. Like, no, he's not. He just has a special time machine. Sometimes we think about God and predestination like he's merely a time lord, like he's traveling around in his divine TARDIS up and down the timeline, knowing what everybody's going to do, and then, and then somehow going back to his heavenly realm and making decisions about all that he knows is going to take place there uh, on earth and in human history. But friends, this is an inadequate understanding of who God is. God is not subject to time and space. He created time and space. And so he... So, Put the other way, time and space are subject to him. He exists outside and above our temporal existence because he's the creator of them. God not only knows the beginning from the end, friends, he is the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega. So immediately we've got to recognize I'm already out of my logical depth here. And if your brains are melting out of your ears a little bit this morning, just thinking about that, like you're in good company, that was me all week this week. God is sovereign in election, and nothing can thwart his purposes. Now understand that this does not mean that we are all robots. 
and that every decision that we make is somehow caused by God and, and every choice, every expression of faith that we, that we express in life is somehow predetermined by God as though it was always going to happen and never not going to happen. And, and every choice, every expression of faith that we, that we engage in is something already predetermined by God in some sort of fatalistic way. Friends, if we understand election that way, we're no better than ancient pagan Greeks who believed that the faiths were there along with the gods determining all of human action. And we're not better than many atheists, particularly like Sam Harris in particular, who sees all of the universe as just a long, unending chain of cause and effect. This is not what the Bible teaches. Rather, God's election is loving. Ephesians 1, 4 and 5 says, in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself. Love, we know, never forces its way upon others, never insists on its own way, and yet God's election is certain from eternity. Perhaps we can think about it this way. I would encourage you to think about it this way. Chew on it. Digest it a little bit. Tell me if you think it's good or bad. But here's how I've been thinking about election in terms of God's sovereignty and human agency this week. That out of God's perfect will, He has ensured from eternity past that His love expressed to individuals in Christ would never fail to win over those whom God has set his saving love on. Let me just admit, I don't know how all of this works. I don't know. But I know that God is true. We, we confess that he is sovereign. And, and we know that he calls people to be saved through faith in Jesus. Divine election is God's grace in action toward the undeserving from eternity... He's known what he's going to do before ever we were born. And it's also his grace in action in human lives. Romans 8, 28 through 30 is often called the golden chain of salvation. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. You see the chain in action. Those whom he foreknew are the same as those whom he has glorified. Ephesians 1 states believers are chosen in Christ to be holy and blameless before God. So there's, there's stuff that goes on in the life of the believer that, that, that is the outworking of election. Election is not just applied to the moment of a person's faith. It's everything before and everything after. All of this means that election, divine election, is not this sort of esoteric, philosophical, pie-in-the-sky, status-declaring sort of concept. Far from it. Election includes everything leading up to a person's salvation, right? Not just the moment of their salvation, but all of the means, as the Baptist faith and message says, everything that came before leading to a person's faith in Christ. God not only ordains the salvation of those who trust Jesus, but also the preschool Sunday school teacher who shares the gospel with two and three-year-olds and the faithful youth pastor who preaches the gospel and calls his students to trust Christ every week. And God ordains every prayer of parents for their children to come to know Christ, to be part of those things that that move in a loving way, in a divinely loving way, in the hearts of those who will trust Jesus by faith. And not only that, but God's purpose in election extends beyond the moment of salvation also to include all of the Christian life thereafter culminating ultimately in the Christian's resurrection from the dead and everlasting life in the new heavens and the new earth. Election is so much more than just the moment we walked down an aisle or prayed with a friend to trust Jesus. 
Divine election is God's grace in action in human lives. In this way, God is, friends, see that God is personally involved and personally invested in bringing about His purpose in the lives of believers. Salvation is not just forgiveness of sins so that I can go to heaven when I die. It's about being conformed to the image of Christ, as Romans 8 says, being adopted as a son, as a daughter of God, as Ephesians 1 says, living holy and blameless lives before God and in the world. Divine election is not this silly game in heaven where God is flippantly picking winners and losers. It is God from eternity looking on the whole of sinful humanity and in His abundant grace causing sinners to be made right with Him in order that he might display the beauty of his mercy and the beauty of his grace as he transforms undeserving sinners into saintly sons and daughters. Election is God's grace in action in human lives. It has real life implications. But finally, and we must not miss this, divine election is God's grace in action in Christ and not apart from him. Ephesians 1, as we read it, declares that believers are chosen in Christ and are predestined for adoption through Christ. Romans 8 says the elect are predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. This much is true. We cannot talk about election without talking about Jesus. And if you ever meet a person who's talking about election or predestination without talking about Jesus, run the other way. The elect are chosen in Christ and through Christ and for conformity to the person of Christ. This means that God's plan to save sinners from eternity past has always been intended to happen through Jesus and never apart from him. Jesus is the sinless and divine son of God who died as a substitute for sinners and to take the wrath of God on their behalf. So God's election is not on the basis of your worthiness, my worthiness. His election is based on the worthiness of Christ. Salvation is not ordained by God to those who try harder, do better, but to those who repent of sin and trust Jesus. Salvation is not a promise to be claimed by those who say they know God, but only to those who have come to the Father through the only available route, through Jesus, the Son, who is himself the way, the truth, and the life. All of it is in Christ. Nowhere in Scripture does God ever give anyone hope for forgiveness and eternal life outside of Jesus. Let me say that again for emphasis. Nowhere in Scripture does God ever give anyone hope for forgiveness and eternal life outside of Jesus. John 3.16, we all know it. God loved the world in this way, that he sent his one and only Son, So that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. All of salvation is always through Jesus. Which means, friend, if you long to be saved from sin and you sense a call of God to come to him, you sense God calling you now, come to me, trust me, trust my son, have your sins forgiven. You can do so only through Christ. With God at the head of election from eternity past, at the heart of election in the person of His Son, and with God to secure and to preserve the elect through the Holy Spirit, He makes His gracious self the beginning, the middle, and the end of all of salvation. It is all from Him and through Him and for Him and, praise God, by Him. Now, some of you may be asking, how can I know if God has chosen me for salvation? How do I know if I'm among the elect? I want to answer your question by asking a few more. 
How can I know if God has chosen me for salvation? First of all, do you understand your sin and your need for God's forgiveness? Second, have you come to understand and to believe that Jesus is God's son who died on a cross for your sins and who rose from the dead? Third, have you publicly confessed Jesus as Lord of your life and repented of your sins? Well, if the answer to all of these is genuinely yes, yes, I do know that I'm a sinner and I do want God's forgiveness. Yes, I do believe that Jesus is God's son who died on a cross and rose again. Yes, I have professed that Jesus is Lord of my life and I'm living every day in repentance of sin. Well, then good news. The Bible gives us every reason and ample permission to affirm your salvation. If you understand that you are only saved from sin as a gift of God's grace to be received by dependence upon Jesus only, you can have confidence that you are among the elect. Praise God. And friend, if you're among those who aren't sure if you are or not, understand this this morning. That God's call, God's call to turn from sin and believe in His Son goes out to everyone. You can be right with God. You can have your sins wiped away. You can be justified to your creator. You can look forward to eternal life in his presence after you die. And that call to faith in Jesus Christ, that gospel call goes out to everyone in this room this morning. If you have not yet trusted Jesus, but you want to be saved, friend, there's only one way and it's by faith in him. So trust him today. Don't let this discussion of election predestination mess with your head so much. Just hear the call. Listen to the call. And if God is calling you, say, yes, Lord, I believe. Yes, Lord, I want to turn from my sin. Yes, God, I want to trust your son as my savior. Make me new. Wash me clean. Help me to walk with Christ. Divine election is God's grace in action. It's working. It's effective. It's his grace in action toward undeserving sinners, from eternity. He's not making it up as he goes. It is, it is his grace in action in human lives, which means it impacts our, our daily living, and it's in Christ and certainly not apart from him. Now, what do we do with this truth? What do we do with this understanding of election from Scripture? Well, first of all, this truth of election, this, this aspect of our salvation, should do at least three things in us this morning. First of all, this truth of salvation should lead us to humility. It should lead us to humility. The truth of election, the the concept of divine predestination, is easily the weightiest and most difficult to understand aspect of the doctrine of salvation. Aren't you glad I started with an easy one? The very reality that election is a matter that derives from God's eternal nature makes a total and complete understanding of it inaccessible to human beings. We're talking about stuff in the mind of God, people. Similarly, there are other doctrines of Scripture that that are difficult to understand. The doctrine of the Trinity, that there is one God who exists eternally in three persons, The doctrine of the hypostatic union of Christ, which is the the teaching that Jesus is fully God, fully divine, and fully human at the same time. The doctrine of the divine inspiration and human authorship of Scripture. These are all biblically attested truths, yet among them we don't have anything in human existence to adequately compare them to. 
What else in human existence is one and three at the same time? What else in human existence is 100% one thing and 100% another thing? Nothing, really. There's nothing in human existence to compare the Trinity to. And as soon as we start comparing the Trinity to stuff, we're already way down the road into heresy, right? So just be careful. God is not like a three-leaf clover. So is the same with election, right? These two truths are affirmed in Scripture. God is totally sovereign. He's in control. Nothing can thwart His purposes. And human beings are really responsible to God for their sin. And the elect of God make real decisions, real commitments of faith to Christ for salvation. God is totally in control. We are not robots. God is totally sovereign. We make real professions of faith. This is what we call a theological paradox. Two truths that seem to be in competition with one another, contradictory to one another, and yet at the same time are both true. It's a paradox. And the Bible is not full of them, but there are a few very important ones, and this is one of them. And so just because there are two, these two truths, God is sovereign and humans are really responsible for our sin and for whether, whether and how we respond to the gospel call, these two things are, are both on display in Scripture. Just because to our eyes they seem contradictory, every place in Scripture they are affirmed as both being true. So we as believers need to say, okay, God, I don't know how these two work out, but I trust that in your will, in your sovereign power, that they do. And I'm going to be humble about my conclusions on these things. At some point, we have to, with election, just as we do with the Trinity, just as we do with the hypostatic union of Christ, at some point we have to appeal to mystery. That there are some things in the mind of God that we can't comprehend because of the very stark difference in our existence from God's existence. He's different from us. Entirely different from us. He's independent of us. He is not subordinate to us. In Isaiah 58, verses 8 and 9, God says through his prophet Isaiah, My thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as, high as, the, he- for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. That's not God being condescending to people. He's just saying, I need you to understand there are some things you won't ever understand. Proverbs 15, verse 33 says, The fear of the Lord is instruction in wisdom, and humility comes before honor. I've seen a whole lot of people, friends even that I went to seminary with and other places, make a big deal about how much they knew and understood predestination and election to the point where, to the point where they are dishonoring other believers because they don't agree with them on some of the more minute details of predestination or election or because they're not in the same camp as them. Friends, that is not humility that leads to honor from God. That's a a position of seeking to honor self, dignify self, before honoring God and loving others. The doctrine of election, mysterious as it is, is something that should lead us to humility. Lead us to humility. Second, this truth of our salvation should comfort the hearts of true Christians. It should comfort the hearts of true Christians. In every place that it is mentioned, and and I encourage you this week, go and and do maybe a Bible word study on the word elect or chosen. 
um, and, uh, and maybe even predestination as well. In every place that it is mentioned, election, predestination, is meant to be a comfort to Christians. Romans 8, 28-30, is written to encourage beleaguered and bewildered Christians who are living as saved and loved by God according to the righteousness and acceptance that God has been given to them in Christ in the middle of a a, a very difficult culture in which to live that way. These are Christians living in Rome who are facing social oppression, maybe rejection from their family because of their faith in Christ, who will, in a few years' time, be be systematically arrested and some of them publicly tortured and killed for their faith. And it is to these beleaguered and bewildered and scared, in some ways, Christians that Paul is writing to them about this doctrine of election. This is is profoundly a, a passage that is meant to edify the weary and the questioning in the midst of suffering. The overall encouraging tone of Romans Chapter 8, verses 28 through 30, are, are one of our key texts this morning, is underscored by the last verses of Romans 8. Here's how Paul ends Romans 8, verses 38 and 39. Listen. He says, I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The doctrine of election, brothers and sisters, should serve to steady our souls in anxious times when our consciences or the adversary seek to condemn us, seek to dissuade us, seek to say to us, your salvation isn't really secure. You need to work harder. You need to prove yourself more to God. You should feel really, really guilty about that sin, even though you confessed it. And even though you're repenting of it, you should still feel really bad about it because you're not good enough for God anymore. And he might just drop you off on the street corner one day and drive away and just leave you there hanging. Paul says, no! If God has chosen you, he is not going to let you go. Listen to what Jesus says in John chapter 10, verses 27 through 30. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Friend, if you have heard the voice of Christ, the call of Jesus, and you have come to him as Lord and Savior, with open hands, open hearts, saying, Jesus, I'm yours. Cleanse me, make me clean. Do whatever you want with my life. You are master. You are commander. My life is yours. You can have confidence that nothing and no one can ever snatch you out of his hand. Why? Because he has purposed from eternity past to keep you. The doctrine of election should comfort the hearts of true Christians. And third, it should invigorate us toward mission and discipleship. It should invigorate us toward mission and discipleship. We've talked a lot about what election is this morning, and certainly more could be said. But one thing that election certainly is not is an evaluative matrix through which we can determine who will trust Jesus and who won't. The doctrine of election is not meant to be used like those fancy Ben Franklin bifocals in National Treasure 
where you can flip up and down the different lenses and see secret messages hidden in paintings and documents and stuff like that. That's not what the doctrine of election is meant to do for Christians. It is not meant for you to take and hold the Bible out like this, every lost person you meet, and, and like kind of read it and look at them and say, well, God, are they going to be saved or won't they be saved? Are they going to believe if I share the gospel with them or won't they? This person probably won't. This person probably will. So I'm going to share with them so I don't waste it on these people. That's insanity! The doctrine of election is not meant to be used like that, friends. And we don't have permission anywhere in Scripture to use it that way. Because God has elected people from every tribe, nation, tongue, and ethnicity around the world to be saved by His grace through faith in Jesus. And because God has ordained the preaching of the gospel to be the means by which the elect hear the message of Christ and come to Him. And because the advanced knowledge of who is among the elect and who's not among the elect is not knowledge that God has made accessible to us, then we must first proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ in the whole world without prejudice freely to all. The knowledge of who is known by God in a saving way is known by God. That's not information that He gives to us. And He gives us reason to, to, to be comforted, to be assured that our faith in Christ is real faith, real saving faith, and that we are among the saved. But He does not give us information about who will or who won't ultimately be saved. So be humble and don't start acting like you know who will and won't respond to Jesus. Second, we must not withhold the gospel from anyone based upon our assumption of someone's potential to be among the elect. And only with great reluctance and only with much prayer and trust in God should we move on from those whom we have shared the gospel with and they have rejected it. Saying no one time doesn't mean they'll say no forever. There are a good many among the elect today who, would, who, who probably, and even in this room, who know Christ by faith, who, who would say, I said no to Jesus 150 times before I finally said yes. It ought to invigorate us toward mission to know that God is calling people to himself from every tribe, nation, tongue, and people group around the world. And that the way that he calls is through the preaching of the gospel. The way the sheep hear the voice of Jesus is as we preach the gospel of Jesus. And so if we want the sheep to hear, we must call out to them. Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, writing to the young pastor in Ephesus there, chapter 2, verse 10 and following, he says, Therefore I endure everything. For the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. What is Paul saying there? He's saying, I endure everything. We know the things that Paul endured. He was nearly stoned to death in one city. He was beaten for his preaching of the gospel. He had been arrested a number of different times. He'd been shipwrecked and, uh, and, and deserted on islands for periods of time before. He was hated by many, scorned by more, ultimately lost his life at the hands of the Roman Empire for preaching the gospel. I endure everything, Paul says, for the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Paul is saying, I put myself through everything that I put myself through to preach the gospel to people who haven't heard it yet, because among them God is calling some to be saved. I put my life on the line for the gospel because it's the way that people will hear the saving news of Jesus. 
He says, the saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will live with him. If we endure, we will reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. And if we are faithless, he still remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. God is determined in his loving purposes from eternity past to save some sinners for his glory and their good. And he's going to do it through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This doctrine of election should invigorate us toward mission, but it also should invigorate us toward discipleship, toward our own growth and maturity and obedience to Jesus. Since God's purpose in election, as we saw, is not just the saving of the elect, but it continues to their sanctification, to their conformity to Christ, to being holy and blameless before him, then we must, as those who know Christ, we must pursue godliness and Christ-likeness. It's what God has saved us for. The doctrine of election necessitates the active pursuit of maturity in Christ, the active pursuit of discipleship, the active pursuit of obedience to Jesus by everyone who calls on him as Lord. Election is not a status attained, dear friend. Don't treat it that way. It is a gracious gift of God to be received with gladness and stewarded in holiness with the help of the Holy Spirit and with the help of others, the church of Jesus Christ. Paul says also this to the church in Philippi, Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We are not saved to be able to declare to the world from positions of arrogance, I am one of God's favorites. And if you do that in this building and I hear you, we're going to have words. We are saved by God to be conformed to the image of his son. Think on Christ a moment. Think on Christ a moment. Think about his holiness. Think about his gentleness. Think about his conviction. Think about his love for others. Think about his humble service even to the point of dying on a cross for undeserving sinners. That's the character God intends to work in the hearts of those that he has lovingly saved and called to himself. There's no arrogance in that. There's no pride in that. There's no dividing into camps in that. There's only growth and maturity in Jesus that the whole church, as Paul goes on later to say in Ephesians, might build itself up in love, growing up into Christ who is the head, working together in ways that bless the world and demonstrate the gospel. Divine election is sort of where salvation starts. It starts in the heart and the mind, the eternal will and perfect purpose of God. According to his infinite grace, God has chosen to call, justify, sanctify, glorify sinners, undeserving sinners, they might resemble his son, Jesus, their savior. Friend, this morning, if nothing else, I hope that you have been humbled as you've considered God's grace toward you one more time this morning. I pray, Christian, that you have been comforted in the security of your faith, 
that those that Jesus calls and hear his voice and come to him, no one, no, no one will ever snatch them out of his hand. And church, I pray that we would be invigorated, driven by the knowledge that God lovingly saves undeserving sinners to proclaim the gospel without prejudice and to pursue Jesus with deep passion that we might be as sons and daughters of God, adopted in Christ, conformed to his image, to the glory of God and for the good of the world. I invite you this week to press into this difficult topic. Think about it some. Read scripture on it. And try to read scripture on its own terms. Don't read it through the lens of this or that theologian. Read God's word. And ask God, give me clarity on this in as much as you desire for me to be clear. And with the rest of it, help me to trust it to you. Instead, encourage me, embolden me, help me to live with passion for your glory and for the gospel in the world. Let's pray together.